Hey there, welcome to Groundbreakers, a bi-weekly podcast that explores transformations in where, how, and why we work, and the intersection of DEIB within our workplaces and spaces. I'm your host, Shelley Wright, Chief Diversity Officer at Unispace. With each episode of Groundbreakers, I'll be talking to fascinating people, all of them groundbreakers in their industries. We won't have all of the answers, but we'll have some provocative and pretty entertaining conversations. We're going to have a lot of fun. We have an exciting show for y'all today. We'll be talking to Pamela Prince Eason, President and CEO of Women's Business Enterprise National Council, colloquially known as WeBank. I cannot say enough about how much I admire, adore, and truly enjoy this woman. Pam's knowledge in multiple fields is unmatched. Her passion is true and her energy is, well, the stuff legends are made of. Welcome to Groundbreakers, Pam. Oh, thank you, Shelley. I have so much respect for you as well. It's a great honor to be here with you. Oh, you're so sweet. We're going to have a lot of fun today. I, I wish we had five hours to speak, but, you know, we'll, we'll fit it into our allotted time. Um, you know, I, let me give our listeners a little bit of background on you, Pam. And I, I did a deep Google dive, so there's a lot to know about you. Pam has been the president and CEO of WeBank since 2011. And prior to that, she's held various leadership positions, including vice president of uh, Worldwide Procurement for Pfizer, Inc., Pam is in her second term as a member of the National Women's Business Council, a nonpartisan federal advisory council who advises presidents, Congress, U.S. Small Business Administration on economic issues of importance to women business owners. And she's a proud supporter of Women Impacting Public Policy, WIP, I guess you call it, right? Yep. Uh, Pam's dedication to women's business leadership is illustrated in her many professional and personal roles, advancing women's excellence and opportunity, which I'm looking so forward to hearing more about today. Pam, that's a lot. (laughs) Well, Shelley, you know, when you've got three daughters and six granddaughters, you have to really focus on what's out there for women. (laughs) Holy smokes. Okay, I don't. I don't think I knew all of your grandchildren are 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 ladies, are girls. Yes, every one of them. Okay, so yeah, so this work is personal to you. It is very yeah. much. Well, I want to. I want to st- start here. Um, you know, you've been leading WeBank since 2011, correct? Yes. Yeah. So what, you know, as, as, I, as I came to know you and, and as my company, Unispace, um, engaged on a partnership with WeBank, um, which is really meaning, meaningful, and, and we'll talk a bit more about that later, but I began to kind of hear rumblings about Pam Princes and like, and I started to Google and I was like, this woman is remarkable. Um, and this woman was in the for-profit world and pivoted into essentially the nonprofit world. And so my question is, what was happening in 2011 that caused you to make this incredible pivot to a nonprofit? Wow, what a great question. And I have to say in 2011 and 2012, I got that question almost every day. You know, Pfizer is an absolutely wonderful company. I love every minute that I spent there. Their leadership, you know, was amazing to deal with. Um, Every colleague that I worked with around the world, um, just truly amazing people. But, you know, we were um, continuing to acquire businesses left and right. And it really becomes very tiresome uh, to go 
through these continuous acquisitions of businesses and really kind of wears you out. At about the same time, my father was having a health crisis and my youngest granddaughter was being born. And so um, I kind of recognized at that point that I needed to look for a little bit more balance in my life. And I was very fortunate in that uh, Pfizer had me on the board of this organization, which you affectionately call WeBank. And um, and so for that reason, I, I really looked at what was going on there. And, and what I recognized was, I think I am kind of a teacher at heart. I love to share when I find good things and share those with other people. And um, I think I'm a full-time learner, too. And mm-hmm. so, um, you know, I had such great opportunity, and I learned so much throughout my career, but, you know, especially at Pfizer and in there. And um, I realized that WeBank as a nonprofit was very much being led as a nonprofit, uh, where it yeah. focused primarily on gala and on on activities that would bring people together. But it it and I don't want to say anything negative about it. I think it was great in its time. But it needed some more business leadership that really understood the procurement process and understood what decisions were being made in corporate America and what type of talent there needed to be um, in order to be effective as a woman-owned business or any small business for that matter in these large global supply chains. So I really felt like I had the unique uh, positioning of having worked in large corporations because I did that in my entire career, um, except for eight years in which I ran my own business, which was a consulting business. And it was a small business, but, you know, roughly a million dollars. So it was still a decent sized small business. Um, And so taking that learning as a woman owned business, but also as a corporate member of this organization, I realized that I had a lot to bring through not only what I understood about global supply chains, but also my network right? All the great people like you that I know um, that are willing to give their time to an organization like this and to mentor women-owned businesses and to provide great training opportunities. Um, It just seemed like the place to be, you know, it was like kind of right person, right time. Yeah, no, that, thank you for sharing all of that. Um, You know, you and I are like-minded in in a whole lot of ways, Pam. And one of the ways, I I love what you just said about, you know, the nonprofit, um, kind of the way that those historically have operated uh, versus business, the for-profit, I do think each independently can take a page from the other. Um, Absolutely. I I, I don't know of, you know, I've founded a couple of nonprofits. They're hard. They're labor intensive, but you do have to run them um, through a business lens if you if you really want to you know drive incredible impact. That said, we have watched corporate America and global corporates around you know around the world in the past couple of years, especially kind of take on some of the ideology of nonprofits now, haven't we? That's yes, we the have. discipline of DEIB and um, equity and parity. That in my mind, that's business seeing their work through an advocacy lens. Absolutely. So I, I love it. And, and I, you know, you mentioned something about procurement. I want to get heavily into that because, you know, as we all know, we're in a supply chain, you know, what is it, SNAFU? Yeah. Um, <laughs> do, can I say what SNAFU stands for? I think we all know. Anyway, if you don't know what it stands for, um, Google that. Um, so off the top of your head, do you recall what the mem- how strong the membership in numbers for WeBank was when you took it over? Where is it now? And, and where are you headed? 
Yeah, so I would say we've probably doubled in corporate membership. Wow. We've got the vast majority of the Fortune 500 um, that are involved in the organization. I will say that we grew at a steady pace for most of what I would say maybe were the first seven years um, where people were becoming aware that, that there needed to be this different lens in corporate America. And yeah. there was a real um, understanding of the role corporate America should take in accepting that role, right? Um, I would say that uh, since many of the the um, issues that you mentioned, uh, George Floyd, uh, you know, attacks on Asians, uh, those sorts of things, um, all those inequity-based activities, they have caused us to skyrocket. And literally, um, since the pandemic started, we have over 200 new corporate members. So corporate America does appear to be taking um, their role in society very seriously. They appear to be committing to, you know, one of the great things about committing to WeBank is the fact that we have all types of women, right? We have women of different race. We have women of different um, sex, you know, those sorts of things. And so um, they could be a veteran. uh, They could be differently abled. There's so many different things that when you get involved with our organization, you really are able to get involved with every type of small business that's out there. And so we are seeing tremendous growth. Um, I would have told you maybe a year ago that I thought it was a knee-jerk reaction to yeah. some of what was occurring during the pandemic timing. Um, however, I'll have to tell you, the more conversations I'm having uh, with corporate leaders, the more I can tell that there's been a re- real sea change and recognition yeah. that things have got to be different. And yeah. so, you know, I, I don't know if I see us doubling again in the next three years, but I think that we definitely have the interest of the biggest players out there who can make a difference in global supply chains and in federal government procurement. Yeah, no, that's that's exciting, and and you mentioned that that you you could have easily thought you know maybe it's a knee jerk reaction, but now you see it's 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 sustained and it's real. I mean, obviously, we should allow for the margins. We should allow to know that some of the engagement with agencies like WeBank, some of it is performative. Mm-hmm. Some of it is you know we just have to do it, but you know. Tossing those people out of the basket, um, it, there are a tremendous amount of folks, I think, who really want to do this work, and they know they need to do something, and they don't quite know what to do. I wanted to ask you about the intersectionality you just mentioned. So the right. women that are, you know, and, and I was at the conference in, in Florida, um, the WeBank conference last fall. The intersectionality of the women struck me like a ton of bricks. This wasn't, you know, just a bunch of white women. There were trans right. women. There were black women, Asian women, uh, immigrant women. Like, do you feel like that that's the next conversation that um, that businesses need to be having? Uh, the understanding of if you want to lift one population up, you're going to have to reckon with you're going to have to like Un, uh, you know, unpackage all of it. Yeah. Um, I mean, in the advocacy where I, I'm, I'm on a nonprofit called Glisten. I, I'm the vice chair of that board, and we're having deep conversations even amongst the queer community. Like, what is our place in uplifting Black and Brown communities that intersect right. with LGBTQ folks? And you know, right. is that the next conversation? 
You know, I really think it is, and I, I'm actually glad you brought that up as something we should talk about really early on in this conversation. Um, I would definitely say that historically, our organization had focused on on really white women at that time, and that primarily mm. came from the background of how WeBank was started, which was they uh, women had been involved with the National Minority Supplier Development Council, and they made a very strategic decision to focus on black and brown. And so when they did that, that left white women with really no place to go and and led to the development of this great organization that I'm able to uh, mentor now uh, for Susan Berry, who was our founding president and for many of the regional partners that helped to to form this organization. And um, the that caused the demographic to really come across as as completely white. I think that in 2011, we definitely made, when I came on board, a concerted effort um, because of my background from Pfizer of recognizing, you know, I was in global procurement. So I dealt with people all around the world. And diversity means something different when you're outside the U.S. Yeah. And valuing people who are different is very different um, when you're working with people who that their hometown is outside the U.S., right? Yeah. And so um, I think that we had a really unique perspective that that full inclusion uh, was important and that we had to set some real goals for ourselves uh, to make a difference and to be much more inclusive. Um, at that time, uh, WeBank started uh, working very closely uh, with, with the National Gay and Lesbian Chamber of Commerce. And uh, uh, Justin Nelson, who's in charge there, along with uh, Chance Mitchell, they're very good friends of ours. And and um, just you know, people that that we love very dearly, they helped us to not only understand the challenges that existed for women that had the intersectionality, as you said, yeah. um, but also to deal with issues that we wouldn't have gotten to as quickly, like um, the situation with trans women and that yeah. sort of thing. Yeah. And so I think that what we've done is we've used our intersectionality to really understand our particular audience and make sure that we're breaking down barriers for each of those. And I think the thing that um, I learned recently, and I would give anything if I could remember who this was, this was that I was with, but I was in a session at at Caesars two weeks ago, and someone did a discussion about intersectionality, and I yeah. thought it was absolutely, you know, fabulous. If you say, for instance, you know, I'm a woman, right? Yeah. I'm a mother, right? I'm right, a partner yeah. to someone. Um, I'm gay. I'm black. I'm, you know, and you start to yeah. list off all of those things. Well, you can talk about how you might be uh, challenged in any of those particular scenarios by what barriers get thrown up for you. But the best example they gave is to say that, you know, when you deal with me, you're not dealing with just one of these things. It's mm-hmm. that intersectionality when you put all these different things together and you kind of show your hand together. I wish our audience could see that um, because th- you're dealing yeah. with this, right? You're dealing yeah. with this intersectionality of all of this together. And there's so much strength and power in being able to deal with a whole person mm-hmm. versus just these individual uh, faces that you might see at any yeah. given point. Pam, I wish we were on video for our audience to see because when you're talking about that, I, I literally had to throw my fist in the air. I got chills. Like that this is the conversation and that we've got leadership like you who have, um, you know, a deep grasp and passion for this. Um, and it sounds like the, 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 the speaker that uh, spoke at Caesars just really moved you. Um, this is exciting. This is really exciting. And to, to your point earlier um, that you are always a teacher and a student 
Um, that is just absolutely incredible. I, I cannot wait to continue this conversation with WeBank and the other agencies. And, and what is the name of the con- consortium with um, with NGLCC? What did, um, you mentioned? So that? when we're all together, um, yeah. it's the National Business Inclusion Consortium. So it's NBIC. Um, and so we call it the NIVIC, obviously. Um, and it really is made up of the presidents of each of the main certifying organizations yeah. that are championing um, uh, the movements that all of us are, are supportive of. And there's a strong passion. Um, additionally, it includes the U.S. Uh, Black Chamber, the U.S. Asian Chamber, and WIP that you mentioned earlier from yeah. a political perspective. So when we look at issues that are um, impacting women or when we look at um, issues impacting all people who are not large business. Um, yeah. It's really great for us to have those conversations across the entire NBIC um, because, again, we could look at it as just those individual situations that somebody could champion, or we can look at the issue in a broader sense. And I think we come out with better solutions and better recommendations when we look across everything as a whole. Incredible. I love it. I love it. You were quoted as saying that the biggest change in this time since since your tenure at WeBank has been a true corporate and government commitment to making opportunities available to women. And additionally, that there was a misconception that small business had difficulty serving large clients. Can you speak to that a little bit? Sure. I think uh, one thing that makes me unique about that is um, probably when I worked in the world of procurement for probably at least the first 10 years uh, that I was in that space, I probably um, unconsciously felt that way. Mm. I never said it, and I don't think if you had said it to me, I would have believed it. But um, as I think about the fact that I was always looking for ways to reduce risk um, for the company, um, that I wanted to ensure that I was getting best price, like the basic learnings were things that, of course, a larger company can protect us and and be better able to supply us, different things like that, um, that because they're so large, they should have better pricing, right? Um, right? Because they have access to so many resources, they should be able to respond quickly, right? And I thought of everything with a large business mentality because I was in a large business. Right. And um, so, again, not that I conscience, consciously chose um to think that small business couldn't serve us more that as I would just go to do my work, I would feel more comfort around larger situations. Mm-hmm. Um, it was very eye-opening uh, when Pfizer actually wanted me to take the role of better understanding diversity and inclusion, of course, diversity at that time, um, because it really was a developmental need for me, again, not because I was biased, but because I was unconsciously biased, right? Yep, yep. And so uh, what I've seen is... I freaking love you, Pam. I just love you so much. I just love love that you're going here and that you're sharing with us. You know, this is... It's hard to acknowledge that that our unconscious biases play out, but that you're willing to share that with. Just thank you. Just go on. Sorry to interrupt. I was just... I'm moved. (laughs) But but you're right. And Shelly, I think that that's what people in corporate America... Well, all people actually need to face is that in, in their life... 
for whatever reason, however you were brought up, however you make decisions, um, what you learned in school, those sorts of things, all all of those are you and and it's how you start to make decisions. And something has to stimulate you to make your decisions differently, right? Mm -hmm. If you had asked me when I came out of college, you know, would would you be running a nonprofit? I would say never in my life, right? Um, That's just not where my passion is. I'm all about business. You know, I love accounting. I love global uh, work, you know, those sorts of things. And I never would have envisioned being where I am today. However, I think the most effective I've ever been in my career, though I think I've been successful, is is here at WeBank. And it's because I've been able to to grow enough to learn to know what I don't know, right? Yeah. And to recognize yeah. that. And so I think if everyone would really challenge themselves um, to think about how they make decisions, that would help them to make even better decisions. So when we would get into certain scenarios and I would challenge myself to say, okay, let's just do something really basic. This is not exactly how I'd encourage people to do it. But yeah. in the beginning, I would I would ask myself, okay, you know, I'd go over to our diversity organization and I would say to Gwen, you know, Gwen, give me five people that you think uh, could do business in this category. I'd be really interested to just see who you would surface up for me, right? And yeah. and I'm not thinking she's going to fail, but I'm thinking I'll be surprised if there's five people, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm not thinking about it negative. I'm just not thinking about it positive either. Got it. And, yep. you know, she comes back. She does this great job of explaining all these people that she knows specifically because of how she's engaged with organizations. And she, in fact, presents some really fabulous, fabulous suppliers that I myself would never, ever have gotten to. And then as they come in and they present to our audience, that that comes across to people as being a very different type of supplier that they really haven't had experience with. And what I see now is much more receptivity to that, Mm -hmm. that when Mm -hmm. you interview people, you don't just say, you know, what's your price? How would you execute this? Whatever. You get really specific about, you know, what's your methodology? How do you deliver? Um, You really look for um, the things that allow them to show their innovation, their creativity, um, their different ways of responding. And quite honestly, they're amazing. Yeah. Can we drill down a little bit more on that? Uh, anecdotally, sure. Can you can you um, can you give us kind of a portrait of an example of you know when you were at Pfizer when you kind of first started to bring some of these more nimble smaller women-owned businesses into your pipeline? Do you can you recall an a, a specific kind of situation that that worked? Yeah, so I'll I'll break off of not just specific to Pfizer, but just generally some okay. of the scenarios where we see this as effective. Um, you know, I think that um, a lot of buyers and, and procurement professionals um, are looking for a solution that they know will deliver the you know the best possible opportunity to their company. And so um, again, that tends to lead toward thinking I have kind of one one partner to go out and and to look at and to um, constantly have my dialogue with. So some of the scenarios that I've seen that are um, important are, and and let's use Unispace as an example as well, Um, in some scenarios where you've got a a huge um, new space being built out, it may be that there's not one specific women, LGBT, minority, veteran-owned business that could take on the entire scope of work, but there could be sub-pieces of that that would be very important to do. And I think that 
we probably stumbled upon that in the early days as being a pilot, right? We would say, oh, let's pilot this person and see if they can do this smaller scope of work. I think now what you find is that people are being very intentional, especially about their space, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. that's what you do as a professional. Mm -hmm. Um, And in that space, they want to create these different cultures and environments, et cetera. And so using different players to work in those different spaces can be very important. If you still need your one point of contact, there's always the opportunity to do some second tier work, right? Where I work with a company as the primary supplier to my Myself, and then I am looking for them to bring on that additional diversity that I may even direct them to, that I yeah, know where yeah. that is. And so I am seeing that for some of the largest companies being very successful. I want to be clear, though, that at any point that a small business can do business directly with a large business, I absolutely think it should be a direct relationship. Yeah. But there are many opportunities in some of the largest areas uh, to be able to do it as kind of a multi-tier approach. And um, then and adding so in would, the sourcing component, right? So absolutely. materials, that's that's another great opportunity, right? So if we, yes. you know, uh, it, it is, as you know, it's labor intensive to go out there in the market and, you know, find the, the, the suppliers and, and, and contractors that will work, will be able to work and fit for are fit for purpose, right? Um, right? But that's why we have our partnership with WeBank and NGLCC right. and NMSDC. Um, and but being if you can't find those, you know, you can also kind of lean into sourcing and material and making sure that you're buying those um, from diverse vendors. Is Absolutely. how how big a piece is that? Yeah. Um, well, I think that that can that can be equally as big big as anything. So, for instance, you know, a lot of organizations want to have one uh, kind of marketing organization that they deal with is kind of their agency of record. Um, but there are many parts of the work that gets executed in marketing and advertising that could absolutely be done with um, whether it be direct materials or print type activities. Um, and again, I don't want just the lowest level of work going to these fabulous businesses. Businesses. But I think, you know, what I really, I guess I'm trying to convey is that in almost anything you're going to procure, unless it is highly, highly capital intensive, and that's the barrier to entry for a business, um, there there are businesses like ours out there um, that can that can support every single scenario that there is. Um, I think one of the things that's excited me lately is corporate America looking for almost like adjacent capabilities and saying, okay, I realize we've never had somebody who's who've done this type of work, but I think people who generally have a background with this type of profile probably yeah. could be successful here. So why yeah. don't we look for some of these businesses and let's train them or provide them with some additional education or skills so that they can perform in that environment. And I think that that's that works for small business. I also think it works for corporations as they deal with this great shortage of workers um, yeah. in general, sure. right, in their yeah. organizations. Yeah. So you're, you know, you're a teacher to me, and w- you know, I'm the kind of kid student that when a teacher tells me something that that I did right, I feel really good about it, and I want to tell <laughs> you that we at Unispace kind of did what you're talking about, the pilot. Yeah, we were trying to find a painter for a project in New York City. We couldn't find the the right diverse vendor, so we broke up the painting project 
by floor. And we allocated some of that to our diverse um, vendors, and it worked. And it worked really yes. well. So I just, I feel like I just got a gold star from I'm Pam so Princess. proud of you, Shelley. <laughs> uh, well, I'm proud of, <laughs> proud of our procurement and, and delivery team and, and kind of cracking that code. Now, so you mentioned earlier about the unconscious biases and, and the, mm-hmm. the things we learn and the input we get when we're younger um, that really kind of shape the way we make decisions. And so I want to go back a little bit. I know I know you're from, you went to school in East Tennessee. Are you from, uh, so you Johnson City, uh, uh, Johnson City, Tennessee, is that where you're from? Well, so I would say yes and no. Um, I definitely lived here a good portion of my life. I'm actually back back here now. Um, my husband and I are, are generally from this area. I was born in Big Spring, Texas, and my father was in the Air Force. And so I'm okay. an Air Force brat as well. And so I have wow. lived a couple of other places, but I definitely would call Tennessee home without a doubt. Right, which explains all of that orange you were wearing down in Florida, the Tennessee exactly. Volunteers. Um, well, first of all, thank you to your father and, and your family for the service to thank our nation. I, I, I come from military folks as well. Um, I want to I wanna ask a little bit about, you've told me what your dad did, and uh, um, what, what did your mom do? Was your mom a homemaker? Was she, was she in business? Did, did, did she work? Yeah, so I wish everybody could meet my mom, Shelly. She is absolutely um, amazing. And I, I know her. you've met her. I love her. <laughs> um, I, I have the good fortune. Uh, my father passed away a couple of years ago, and um, my husband and I just absorbed my mom right into our family. And so um, my mom was a teacher my entire life. And I, I mean, a school teacher, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, primarily, she taught kind of fourth through sixth grade. So it was that particular age range, though every once in a while there would be a second grade class or something along that line. And she really instilled in us the fact that she wanted uh, to the each of her children um, to really concentrate on learning that our, you know, best opportunities in life would come from being able to make decisions ourselves. And the only way to do that would be to have really learned along the way. And um, she was very much a, an experiential teacher as well. Um, so I can remember, this is really kind of funny, um, when I think I was 18 years old, um, and she, of course, was still a school teacher, um, the World's Fair came to Knoxville, Tennessee, and you've probably seen oh, the wow. Sun Sphere yeah. there, right? Yeah. Um, and all of us as kids and even friends of ours who were 18, we took all these kids to the World's Fair to help mom have enough uh, chaperones and monitors mon- the monitors um, so yeah. that they could actually experience what it would be like to be in kind of um, a different environment than they were normally in. Yeah. And so, you know, mom wasn't your basic teacher. She was, um, I remember her being named a, a 20th century teacher at one point, a 21st really? century teacher using technology when computers came into the to the school for the first time. And she wouldn't strike you as the typical person that, that might have mm-hmm. been that person. Um, but she's just always felt that every child could learn and that mm-hmm. she cared about every single person. And I think she instilled that in all of us. Yeah, that's amazing. And and I have met your mom, number one. You know, she is obviously remarkable and she's just adorable too. She's <laughs> so sweet. I had so much fun meeting her. I, I love that that she was ahead of the curve on mm-hmm 
on experiential learning. I mean, we all now know, right, that people yeah. learn differently and there are, you know, many of us, you know, on the planet are neurodivergent and we learn differently and whether it be visually or, um, you know, a number of different ways. That's really remarkable that, yeah. that she was that way. And and it strikes me that the apple didn't fall far from the tree. Oh, um, thank you, you. you. As we say in the South, you come by it honestly. Um, <laughs> And so, what was your dad's in the Air Force? Uh, what was what was his MOS? What did what did he do? So he flew planes. I mean, that was the easiest way to way to put it. Yeah. Um, and yeah. cool. um, so, as a pilot, you know, he was always looking out above the horizon. Um, and mm. I think he thought that way, right? So, I mean, I swear, I think we were probably, you know, as uh, there were three girls and one boy, and I think he was never concerned about what would happen to my brother. But he always wanted to make sure that as girls, we didn't just grow up, get married, and and have children. Not that there was anything wrong with that, but that mm. he wanted to make sure that we could make our own way. We could make our yeah. own decisions and that sort of thing. And um, so he was always um, ensuring that we had long-term thinking, right? Yeah. Um, and probably when we were eight, I feel like we must have signed a contract to say, you know, I will not get married until I finish college. Amazing. <laughs> and, and I will make the I will make the most out of my career. Um, and so um, I think that for him, that was always important. You know, I think, um, again, from the experiential standpoint, he was a very popular junior achievement advisor uh, back oh, cool. when junior achievement was done as a, a extracurricular versus in the school system. And mm-hmm. um, so I think my love of accounting and finance and everything came from that where I saw these high school students come together, pick products that they were going to make, um, talk about how they were going to price their product, how they were going to design it, um, how they were going to go about selling it, all those sorts of things. Yeah. And so that had a lot of, of impact. So again, um, I think that was important in sports. Um, my dad always thought that we should be involved in sports and there were four of us, so we probably could have been a little team uh, on our own and yeah. learned out teamwork and working things out. But you do learn roles differently when you're on a team versus sure. with your own siblings. And so sports were very, very important um, yeah. to dad that we be involved in that. And I think it made a big difference. Yeah, I mean, I, I grew up much in the same way. Sports were important to learn how to manage your disappointments and learn how to celebrate other mm-hmm. people. And and like your folks, um, that was instilled in, in us three kids as well as, you know, figure out how to price things, sell them. I had a paper route in first grade, you know. I love it. The, the entrepreneurial kind of thing was alive and well in the Midwest. Uh, you know, as you're talking, I'm, I'm trying to guess, like, where in the birth order did Pam fall? I feel like you're the oldest child. You are so correct. Uh, yeah. The bossiness in me comes naturally. <laughs> I wasn't going to say boss. I wasn't gonna, no operation capacity to operationalize. This yes, is what so we my, call it. There are two years between uh, between each of us, and uh, my mom always said that she would never have been able to handle four children if I hadn't have been the bossy little one that I right. was. Um, so I helped I helped her with that when uh, we were young, and um, I think it made me particularly close to my parents as well. Um, We worked as a unit to make sure that our family was always doing the best that they could, and we were all supportive of each other. Love it. I love it. Pam, I I want you to weigh in on supply chain. Um, You know, there's not a person on the planet right now that's not being affected by kind of the disruption in supply chain uh, due to COVID. And, you know, I think the war obviously has a lot to do with it. So take your wee bank bank hat off. and, and put your supply chain and uh, procurement hat back on. And can you talk a little bit about, like, do you stay up at night thinking, here's what they should do, here's what here's what the remedy is, and if only someone would do it? Um, 
talk about that and talk about what the how diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging um, can be positive, positively affected as we kind of come out of COVID and hopefully the war in Ukraine. Um, and like, what are what are the challenges and what are the oppor- opportunities right now as you see it? Sure. Well, you know, I think what's interesting is that um, since COVID, everybody out there knows what supply chain is. When I used to tell people that I was That's a true. vice president in global sourcing or I dealt with supply chains, um, if they weren't in the field, they might not necessarily really understand what it was that you did, right? True. And yeah. so the good news is I think everybody gets what a supply chain is now. And um, so I think people have various opinions about um, how various things can be solved. Um, I think that one of the things I would love to see, and again, this is just me personally, it isn't speaking on behalf of WeBank or anything, is I think there's a lot of work that could exist within the United States that doesn't make us quite so dependent outside the U.S. Again, Mm -hmm. I'm not trying to close our borders down or anything like that. I just think that we've got some unemployment in the U.S. and some real strength in the U.S. that we could take advantage of. uh, Probably would have a, a cost increase to it, given what global dynamics look like, but it might be the right thing to do, right? To, so to an investment in ourselves. Back. Yeah, invest in ourselves. Um, I always think that you're able to make, um, it, let's go back to the airlines, right? The airlines say, if there's about to be a problem and your mask drops down, it says take care of yourself first before right. you take care of someone else. And and that's kind of my general belief system. Again, I'm not knocking, supporting people outside the U.S. I'm not doing anything like that. I'm simply saying I think there's still so much to be done here in the U.S. that I'd yeah. like to see some of that investment and growth done here uh, so it doesn't make us quite so dependent outside yeah. of the U.S., um, and I think that that could break down some of the issues we've had in the supply chain uh, when especially borders could get shut down or, um, yeah, you know, you, yeah. you had to look for alternative sources and there might not have been an alternative source locally available right. to you. Um, so I think the number one thing I'd love to see is really focused in that space. That being said, you know, I'm certainly a global citizen. Um, sure. I'd love to see everyone doing well. Um, I think that the the war is a terrible thing that, that we're going through right now. And I, I don't like to think of where this could lead to. Right. Yeah. Same. Um, I think there's great opportunity, though, for small business because of the ability to be nimble. Um, One of the um, contests that we did um, as WeBank in these first two years of COVID were uh, what we called a a pivot pitch. Right. So for businesses that were doing something right, certified women owned businesses doing something, um, if their line of business kind of went away or wasn't available, um, how did they pivot and and choose to Mm -hmm. do something different and be more creative? And so, you know, an example of someone who was in the meeting space, uh, meetings and events, who used to set up a lot of trade fair booths, they were able to contract with certain states to set up COVID stations, even when those stations were outside, right? And they were great at knowing how to register people, right? For, For things like large quantities of people, how to track those people through various situations, uh, how to set up little stations for people to go to, right? And so I think that um, that's the real opportunity um, for uh, small business right now is to listen to what 
supply chains are saying they need right now and discover whether you're the person who can provide that. And not only that you may be able to do it by yourself as you are now, but you have a vast network available to you of people you could partner with um, in order to bring things to corporations more quickly than they can get them currently. Um, And so I think this is a special place in time um, where that could be taken advantage of. I think that's I love that that uh, scenario of a person who used to do events and they pivot into the you know the much needed work of setting up COVID testing and probably they probably could do like the plexiglass yes. you know for doctors' offices. I mean, it, I think that the one of the silver linings of COVID. Obviously, there are a lot of dark clouds of COVID. You know, the death, the loss of life, loss of business, sure. but people kind of at this point saying, what else do I have to, I have to pivot. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I, I did a pivot of my own, right? So I'm, yes. you know, I'm now, I'm, I'm now doing uh, DEIB work full time. And I have to tell you, it's so cool that it's, you know, my same, my transferable skill set. And I would not have done it, you know, advocacy, storytelling, team building, change management, I wouldn't have done it and, and done this full pivot to Unispace were it not for a global pandemic. So um, I love that you're encouraging uh, your partners and your members to, you know, lean into the pivot. As it were. And, you That's know, Shelly, I would also say, let's use you as an example. I mean, you are such a tremendous role model. You're such a tremendous advocate. You're touching so many people in this role. And and the loss that we would really be suffering, you know, that like opportunity cost that we wouldn't have known about if yeah. you weren't doing this like you are now. Um, that's something that's immeasurable. Right. And so you're right there. There's mm-hmm. such a benefit to us that that occurred and you did something different. And so now I think everything you do going forward will be this tremendous mesh of all the parts of Shelley Wright. Oh, Pam, you're the best. You are the best. Thank you for that. We we know that women have left the workforce in droves during COVID. Um, the Great yes. Resignation, where you know millions of women um, have have dropped out of the workforce for a number of reasons. Um, according to the World Economic Forum, April of 2021, um, they reported that the global gender gap is not expected to close for another 136 years, and the economic gender gap is going to take 268 years. Obviously, you know, this has been devastating and there have been double whammies for women of color and, you know, people who have an intersectionality. I recently discussed this with Pushpa Gowda, who is the um, she leads global technology engagement for JLL. And she talked about it through a lens of tech. Um, obviously, WeBank will have a huge role to play in closing that gap. How do you see it in terms, I mean, it, it, I think it's what we were just kind of talking about in terms of supply chain, but how do you see Way, WeBank kind of helping to close that gap and kind of create some new uh, best practices going forward? And what, how do you see that? I actually think that's our role right now, right? So um, we have had to pivot the same as all the small businesses have had to, uh, large businesses have had to. And the very first thing we did when we discovered that the world had changed, um, and I mean very quickly, um, yeah. recognized that our approach to doing things in an in-person way was not going to be able to happen for the foreseeable future, though we didn't know how long that would be. So we recognized immediately that it was 
was our role to say, okay, where are our women-owned businesses right now? Um, yeah. Some of them are going to be looking to just survive, right? Their their business is going to have ground to a, to a halt. Um, small business in general doesn't have as much cash flow available to it as there are in other scenarios. Um, so we really tried to take a picture right then of what was happening in the marketplace and to recognize that we needed to step forward and look at our women-owned businesses in those categories. It didn't matter any longer that somebody might have been in business 50 years and, you know, we couldn't assume that they would operate in a certain way because right. it's the industry that they're in that might have been impacted, not how long they had been in business. And so... Uh, we very much took it as our responsibility initially in COVID to to really understand what to do for these women-owned businesses. I think where we've transitioned ourselves to in these uh, last two years is in addition to that responsibility, we feel we have a responsibility with corporate America and with the federal government um, to ensure that we understand um, what they are actually doing, almost like the the practice, right, of mm-hmm. of how they're putting into action what they say is diversity, inclusion, equity, yeah. and those sorts of things, and not giving a people a, people a pass on that, right? Identify the areas where you can truly make a difference to close the gaps. And so the work that you see us doing right now is very intentional on yeah. ensuring that we're looking for gaps and we're teaching people how to close those gaps mm-hmm. and where we can convene corporations together to close a gap, we're doing that. Yeah. Um, and so one of the ways that we're focused on closing gaps this year is that we've been going through a series of what we call discovery um, uh, episodes. Um, and we did five industries in March where we took the industry together. I'll use automotive as an example. And um, the leaders in the automotive industry, all the players you would think of, uh, they came together and there was a discussion about, um, you know, uh, the electrification of cars and what the what the new world will be like um, and how manufacturing of that has changed, uh, what the end-to-end process would look like with batteries involved, et cetera, and uh, did a really tremendous uh, process of deep diving and understanding the changes in that automotive industry. For women-owned businesses who wanted to serve that industry, it allowed them to listen to mm. how this change is occurring mm-hmm. and what the business itself is looking for. And they weren't saying, we're looking for this, we're looking for that. They were telling the story of how their business is changing over time and its impact on sustainability, its impact on um, you know every, every kind of aspect of what you can think. And with that, it allowed our our businesses to look at where gaps existed, right, our women-owned businesses, to look at those gaps and to identify for us what they needed in order to be more successful, right? So, uh, you know, we can't pay them more. We have no way to do that. But we can work to try to ensure that they understand how to get the work that will close the gap. And so we see our role almost as an intermediary to understand corporate America and then to translate that to our, our WBEs and then to bring them together to convene, we, we see that as ultra, ultra important. Yeah. I mean, it's exciting to, to imagine that the your women-owned businesses, your partners, your members can have, they can be read in on the 
the changing landscape of your corporate right. partners and what they're trying to do, not read it in the papers after they've already shifted and, and pivoted and headed in a different way, but it's almost like your members are partners in solutioning the the pain points. And, you know, if you ask me, you, you, you want women in the room to solution problems because we're natural born problem solvers. Absolutely. I agree. And, and to your point about like, you know, kind of creating new avenues of business in, in North America and in, in the United States to kind of, you know, lessen our energy dependence abroad, but also, you know, kind of give more opportunity and access to opportunity to, you know, diverse folks, especially women. Like you think about batteries for electric right. cars. I know we've been talking about this in America for <laughs> e- for years, and then we just don't do it. Right. And what will it require, Pam? Is it is it is a it is it government support? Is it a, a partnership with the U.S. government to like subsidize some of these? Is it tax breaks? What is what does it look like? Why why can't we make our own batteries and get rid of the gasoline? Exactly. Um, so I would say that reporting is the thing that I notice is most um, impactful. So let's use the DE&I space, right? Um, there are now uh, organizations like Goldman Sachs saying we are looking at investments and we're trying to determine if we're going to make an investment, is there a woman on the board or are there women on the board? Um, and that requires that there be reporting right that yeah. and change that actually occurs. Um, that is unfortunately what I think it's going to take to to make those types of change because evolution will not bring the change that we need on fast enough. Right. And um, I think the more people participate in inclusive sessions and they see those better outcomes, the the more those stories are told, you're a great storyteller, the more those stories are told the more people say, oh, I can see a way to do that in my company. I can see a way that that would have a better return for our business. Um, So again, um, in our case, that role of convening people, sharing these stories is what's super important because the change has got to be pushed. It's not going to happen via evolution. It doesn't happen naturally, does no. it? <laughs> yeah. Uh, one of the things I repeat often is that if this feels hard, it's because it is. Yes. The, you know, it, it's it's uh, we have to push a, a rock up a steep hill, and that's okay. <laughs> we can do it. That's we right. We can do it. Um, I want to go. I, this is one of my favorite parts of Groundbreakers. Um, I want to ask you a question. A, a segment we call "What's Your Weird." So, Pam, what this is <laughs> is we 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 want to know what is a factoid about you or something about you that is ungoogleable, something uh-huh. that there's no way I would have ever found. What is your weird, Pam? Oh, boy, I'm almost afraid to say that, especially since that Dateline series. There's this Dateline series, you know, something about Pam, and it's been frightening to watch. Um, I wish it would have been something about somebody other than Pam or Shelley. It's um, you, isn't it? It's yeah, you. <laughs> it isn't me, thank God, but, you know, it, it was pretty frightening to watch. Um, but so my weird is that I absolutely love to watch, like, Dateline episodes, 2020 episodes. I love murder podcasts. Um, and I think it's because I pick them to death, right? I, I analyze the person. Um, you know, I want to look at 
them and see, you know, what's their thinking. Maybe mm-hmm. I should have been a psychologist or something, um, because I really wonder what would make someone do some of these things. And, you know, how can they have no feeling about certain things? Um, and so I guess I would say it's my emotional side trying to understand these really weird situations that luckily I don't deal with on a day to day basis. <laughs> Right, but what you what you take away from watching those shows is I th- I think you have a natural curiosity to understand what makes people tick. Right. And no doubt you use that skill in your work every day, all day I long. I think so. I think so. <laughs> okay, good to know about you, Pam. I'm a little a little surprised to know it, but glad to know it. So on that point of your skill set, what is the skill that of of all the things that you do, what is the skill that comes most naturally to you? I think I know. And what is the skill that you have to work at? Um, I think collaboration's probably the the thing that I'm probably the best at to the point that I could even be over collaborative, right? Um, mm-hmm. I think there's times when you, you finally have to stop with it, you know, sort of yeah. thing. Um, and I've definitely better found the balance in that over the course of time. Um, I've always been a proponent of inclusion. I just called it collaboration, right? And so I've always cared what everyone thought about something, not to the point that I would make my decision based on do they like it or not, but more what was the perception um, and what could you learn from what you heard from different people, right? And so I used it to um, really inform decisions. And so I... I am very collaborative. I like to hear from people. Yeah. I think that um, the downside of that, again, is you can be overly collaborative. Mm-hmm. And sometimes when you're taking input, people can assume that you're going to make a decision based on consensus. And that wasn't the intent. So I'm always like, trying, nope. trying to straighten that up. Um I think the thing that I work the hardest on is I'm not all that comfortable with complete silence. Um, and I have no idea why that that is maybe it was because it was always loud around me wherever I was. Um, I work sitting in the center of uh, the New York City train station or the the DC train station mm-hmm. with no problem. I can tune everything out, right? Really. Um, and so sometimes listening um, is where I need to spend a lot more time. Um, really concentrating on giving people enough time to respond and say everything that they wanted to. Um, I tend to form answers pretty quickly. I don't sit and think for a long time about it. And so for a person who does do that, that's a very intuitive thinker um, who is going to give you a way better answer than probably I am, um, I sometimes don't give them enough time. And I've worked really hard. I've got several members on my team that help me practice that routinely um, because I think that you, again, get much more richer solutions when everyone can participate and you have to remember to run things in such a way that everyone can participate in the way that is best for them. It's a good reminder for all of us. And again, you're just, I just adore you. You're just remarkable. You're a remarkable woman. You're too nice to me, Shelley. Okay, it's time for our fire round. I'm going to throw some questions at you. I don't want you to spend a lot of time on these, okay? Five questions coming at you. Are you ready? I'm ready. What's your favorite board game? Monopoly. Do you believe in ghosts? No. What's your biggest fear? Snakes. Who makes you laugh uncontrollably? Could can be a coworker, family, or friend. Uh, my, my one of my granddaughters. If you could be transformed into an animal, which animal would it be? A lion. A lion. Oh, I get that. <laughs> I get that. 
Love it. Okay, that's you're, you're doing very very well. You got a lot of points on the board, Pam. Um, and and our and 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 maybe this will be the final question I ask you. I don't know. I'm going to call an audible at the last minute. But we have a, a, a segment called "If I Could, I Would," and what it is is if I were to answer it, if I could, I would draw and dance. Two things I just cannot do. I've had people tell me, "No, you can if you just." I can't. Just trust me. I worked at Opryland. I was the worst dancer in the history of theme parks. Pam, if you could, what would you do? I would work with families who were dealing with elderly people who needed help. Um, Some of the caretaking, um, the load on caretakers is is, uh, sometimes unbearable for a lot of people, and they don't have a support network. So if I could remedy that, that would be what I would remedy. That's a big one, and that's a, that's a that's an important one right now as people have shifted into caregiving responsibilities uh, earlier than they thought they would, and for longer than they thought they would. Um, I love your heart, Pam. I just love you so much. I love your heart, Shelley. You're amazing. <laughs> you are. So I, I I could keep you all day, but I want to be mindful of your your busy schedule, and I just want to thank you today for for joining us and for sharing, you know, your experiences, your expertise, um, your heart. Um, Just thank you, Pam, for joining us. Pamela Prince Eason, again, the president and CEO of Women's Business Enterprise National Council, WeBank. Pam, thank you so much for being here. Oh, thank you so much, Shelley. Um, Again, thank you for having me here. Um, Thank you for the great work that you do. Uh, It has been really amazing to get to know you and to see the difference that you're making. You're a true true role model. So I am glad to get to spend time with you and to call you a friend. Um, What I would say to everybody out there is remember that inclusion is an action. Um, Mm. Don't just say, I want to be inclusive. Actually take action to show that you do believe in diversity, inclusion, and those actions will lead to results that I believe will be better than you could have ever achieved alone. Thanks for tuning in to Groundbreakers, y'all. It's been a pleasure. A special thanks to the -the behind-the-scenes folks that share my passion and vision for our Groundbreakers series. Writer and producer, Caroline Jones. Engineer, Michael Pelliquin, and the Airs Next and Unispace teams. Despite the many ways our careers and lives may differ, we are all affected by how our environments impact diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. We all have so much to learn from one another, and I appreciate you taking this ride with me. Don't forget to subscribe to Groundbreakers. Tune in and share with your colleagues, your friends, and your families. Talk soon. Talk soon.